good to be together tonight. Appreciate the time we've been able to spend in worship and in Bible study today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark the ninth chapter. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark as we continue working throughout this great book together by looking at what was just read for us, Mark chapter 9, if you'll join me in verses 2 through 8. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to join me in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. A denominational preacher named Charles Swindoll once said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. I certainly don't agree with everything that Mr. Swindoll has to suggest, but I think that this is pretty accurate. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react or how you respond to it. As people, we respond to thousands of different things every single day that we live. It all starts in the morning with the alarm clock. Maybe your alarm clock is on your phone and you don't have an alarm clock that looks like this one, but there are a few different ways that you can respond to your alarm clock. You can turn it off and immediately get up. You can play the dangerous game of seeing how many times you can press snooze, seeing how long you can lay there, or you can accidentally turn your alarm clock off and oversleep and be late to whatever you are trying to get to. Maybe you found yourself in each one of those areas. As we go throughout the day, we respond to other people in conversations. I would say since you've been in this building tonight, you've had a conversation with somebody, somebody said something to you, and you responded to them. In our technological age, we respond to people's text messages, calls, emails. We respond to people's posts on social media. Whenever we get cold, we put on a jacket. Whenever we get hot, we respond by taking off the jacket. Maybe you've done that several times today, going from inside to outside or outside to inside. Whenever we get hungry, we respond by getting food. Whenever we get thirsty, we respond by getting drink. Whenever we're in the car, we respond to other drivers, traffic signs, traffic lights, as you can see in that picture. Whenever we get tired at night, we respond by laying down in the bed and going to sleep. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. 90% how you respond to it. We respond to thousands of things every single day. What about Jesus? How do we respond to the glory of Christ? Because much more important than thinking about how we respond to different things on a daily basis is considering and thinking about how we respond to the glory of Jesus, the splendor, the majesty, the excellence of Jesus Christ. As we study in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, that's what we're going to be exploring. Number one, the glory of Jesus. And number two, how we are to rightfully and appropriately respond to the glory of Jesus. We're going to be studying in a very well-known passage of Scripture. It's a story that's told in three Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We oftentimes call it the transfiguration of Jesus. As we walk through this passage together, let's begin by seeing and experiencing the glory of our Lord. And then let's consider how we should respond to it. Let's begin with the glory of Jesus. Whenever we are confronted, whenever we come face to face with the glory of Jesus, we should be left speechless. We should be left without words. The glory of Jesus is so great that 
we can't even describe it. And when we confront it, when we come face to face with it, we should walk away completely overwhelmed by how excellent and how majestic our Lord actually is. This text is all about the glory of Jesus. If you look in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 32, which we're going to be frequently going back to in our study tonight, I think Luke provides a good summary of this entire passage of Scripture by saying that the disciples saw Jesus' glory. And that's what we see. Whenever we look at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, we are confronted with the glory of our Lord in at least four different ways. Number one, we see the glory of Jesus in their glorious endeavor. Considering the context of this for just a second, if you back up into Mark chapter 8, where we've been studying over the past several weeks, Jesus in His ministry has began to focus on His twelve apostles. On his disciples. For instance, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, following the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, a little bit earlier in Mark 8, in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. We saw where the apostles had an issue with that. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him. In his mind, the Messiah wasn't supposed to suffer. He was supposed to cause suffering on the Romans. He wasn't supposed to be killed. He was supposed to kill. He wasn't supposed to be rejected. He was supposed to lead. And Jesus tells him, you have to set your mind on the things of God. Right now, you're setting your mind on the things of man. I need you to set your mind on the things of God. And I think what we're going to see in Mark the ninth chapter, especially verses 2 through 4, helps them to do that very thing. Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, teaches his disciples about discipleship. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then you're ready to follow me. He talks about losing their life. He talks about valuing their soul. He talks about being ashamed of His words and the impact that that is going to have on them whenever He returns. Then last week, we studied in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1 where Jesus talks to His apostles about the coming of God's kingdom. He says, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I think we're going to see a foretaste of that as we walk through Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 4 over the next few minutes. Verse 2 is set about six days after. Six days after Jesus is teaching His apostles and, and instructing His apostles on discipleship in the kingdom of God, the Bible says that Jesus took His inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they went up on top of a mountain by themselves. Why did they go up on top of that mountain? Mark doesn't tell us. But if we go over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, the Bible says that they went up on this mountain, notice at the end of 28, to pray. And as Jesus was praying, that's when the transfiguration takes place. As we begin this text, we see Jesus and His disciples involved in a glorious endeavor. There is nothing more glorious in this life than when God's people spend time talking to Him. Whenever God's people spend time in prayer, glorious, amazing things happen. And we're going to see that in this passage of Scripture. We see the glory of Jesus, number one, in a glorious endeavor. Number two, we see the glory of Jesus in a glorious transfiguration. 
As Jesus and three of his apostles went up on this mountain to pray, the Bible says right at the end of verse number two that Jesus was transfigured before them. That word for transfigured comes from the same Greek word from which we draw the idea of metamorphosis. You know, when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and a little bit later it comes out a butterfly, in a similar way, Jesus underwent in this text a spiritual metamorphosis. Jesus went from appearing as a physical human being to a spiritual, glorious figure. We see in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3 that his clothes became radiant. More than likely, this took place at night. I think we see hints in the text that this is taking place at night. So can you imagine what this looked like as the disciples are together and they're all praying to the Father? All of a sudden, Jesus' clothes become radiant. They're shining. They're white, it says, as no one on earth could bleach them. There's no natural process that could duplicate what's happening to Jesus here in Mark chapter 9. Then you add on top of that, it's not just His clothes becoming radiant and white, but in Matthew 17, the Bible says that His face shone like the sun. Reminiscent of Moses, whenever he came down from Mount Sinai, after spending time in the presence of God, his face was shining. And in a similar way, we see that with Jesus in Matthew, the 17th chapter. Jesus is involved in a glorious transfiguration. He's being changed. He's being transformed. He's radiating glory from not only his clothes, but also his face. Number three, we see Jesus, the glory of Jesus, in that he is surrounded by glorious company. In Mark chapter 9 and verse number 4, as if his clothes becoming radiant and his face shining was not enough, the Bible says that there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were having a conversation with Jesus. Can you imagine? Moses and Elijah, who have been dead at this point for hundreds of years, they're standing and talking, having a conversation with the Lord Jesus. How did they appear? Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 says that they appeared in glory. Why were Elijah and Moses the ones who appeared with Jesus? Why were they the characters from the Old Testament selected to be in this scene? Well, the text doesn't tell us in Mark, but there are several different interpretations that have been suggested. The traditional one is that together they represent the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. Moses represents the Old Testament law. Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets. But then there are others who suggest that the appearance of Elijah and Moses build this idea that Jesus is who He claims to be. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Built upon two Old Testament passages. One, like in, in Malachi 4 and verse 5, talks about before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Elijah is going to be sent. And then Moses offers a promise by inspiration in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. That's ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. Regardless of the reasoning, we see Jesus' disciples surrounded by glorious company. Jesus radiating glory from His clothes and His face, standing and talking with Moses and Elijah. But then building on top of that, we not only see glorious company, but we also see a glorious conversation taking place. 
in Mark chapter 9 and verse 4, we said a few different times now that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus, but what were they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, but once again, Luke does. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, they spoke of his departure. Literally, they spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We don't know the details of this conversation. Maybe they were talking about the details of what Jesus was going to go through in Jerusalem. Maybe they were giving him the comfort and the encouragement and the strength that he needed to go through it. While we don't know the details, what we do know is that this conversation is centered on glory. It's centered on the glory of Jesus' cross. The glory of Jesus' empty tomb. The glory of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God, which all of those things took place in the city of Jerusalem. A glorious endeavor, going to the mountain to pray. A glorious transfiguration, surrounded by glorious company, and that glorious company having a glorious conversation. It all leads us back to one idea. And that is the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the excellence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this text, we come face to face with the glory of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that this isn't the only text where we see the glory of Jesus. Perhaps we could turn to several other passages. I just want to share a couple that come to my mind. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. We're not going to provide a lot of commentary on these passages, but as we read through them, do the best that you can to zone into them and think about how glorious our Lord is in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. Look at the glory of Jesus in the first chapter of Colossians, beginning in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And to him all and in him rather all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Can you see the glory of Jesus? Then in Hebrews, the first chapter, the first four verses, the glory of Jesus jumps off the page. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the, world of, by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We look at this passage in Mark chapter 9 or several other passages throughout the Holy Scriptures. What do we come face to face with? We come face to face with the glory of Jesus. How excellent he is. His majesty. His splendor. The glory of of King 
Jesus. This is the same Jesus who loves us more than we can imagine. This is the same Jesus. This glorious Jesus that we see in the ninth chapter of Mark is the same Jesus that hung on the cross and suffered for us. The same Jesus that shed His blood for us. This is the same Jesus who promises to one day come back and to claim us as His own. To offer us eternity in His presence. This is the same Jesus who right now is sitting at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. This is the same Jesus who created the world. He created the entire universe and continues to uphold it by the word of His power. Come face to face with the glory of Jesus. And then ask the question, how should we respond to it? Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Here's the glory of our Lord put on display in this passage. The question is, how are we going to react? How are we going to respond? I think in this text, we find two different responses. And only one of them is appropriate. First, we can respond to the glory of Jesus by seeing Him as an equal. Luke tells us a little bit about what's going on with the disciples in Luke chapter 9 and verse 32. He says, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Can you imagine this? It's nighttime. Jesus and his disciples are praying, pointing forward perhaps to what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the disciples are praying and it's really late at night, as they've traveled all the way up the mountain, they start to get really sleepy. Their eyes start to get really heavy. But when this glorious scene begins to unfold in front of them, and the glory of Jesus is radiating, and He's standing next to Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory, they popped up. They became fully awake, the text says. Maybe we've experienced something like that before. I remember one time I was sitting in a Sunday night worship service. The preacher was up preaching and I was so tired. I could barely hold my eyes open. My eyes were going up and down. My head was doing the whole tilt back and forth kind of thing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. At the church we grew up at, we had the hardback songbooks. I was holding one of those in my hand. And as I was going in and out of consciousness, I dropped my songbook and it hit the wood floor right at my feet. Made a huge noise. Boom. Every eye in the church building, which it wasn't that big, probably there were only about 40 or 50 people there, but every eye in the church building was immediately on me. Every person heard it. I can tell you I wasn't tired anymore. I wasn't sleep anymore. I was, as the text says, I was heavy with sleep, but when I dropped the psalm book and it made the loud noise, I became fully awake. And I think that's what's happening to the disciples here, that they're drifting in and out of sleep. They're getting really tired. This scene begins to unravel and all of a sudden, they're in it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 33 says that as they began to awake, the men, talking about Moses and Elijah, were starting to depart. They were starting to leave. You imagine that Mark tells us a little bit about how the disciples felt. I imagine that they were amazed, at least part of them was, but then Mark points out that they were absolutely terrified and they had no idea what to say. Have you ever been in a situation where this is happening in front of you and you really don't know what to say, you really don't know how to respond, and some words just jump out of your mouth? I think that's what happens with the Apostle Peter. Notice how he responds to Jesus' glory and how he treats him as an equal. This is 
verse number five, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He starts off by calling him rabbi or teacher, which if you go back, we said in Mark chapter eight, he confessed him as the Christ. He confessed him as the son of the living God. But as this scene is unfolding, the first word that comes off of Peter's tongue is rabbi, teacher. What was Elijah? He's a prophet of God. What did a prophet do? He taught the will of God. He was a teacher. What was Moses? Moses was the great lawgiver. He was a teacher. In Peter's mind, it seems, he's saying, here are three teachers. Three rabbis standing beside each other. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So here's what we need to do. Moses and Elijah, I I can see that you're about to leave. I can see that you're about to depart. Let's keep this going a little bit longer. Don't leave quite yet. It's good for us to be here because there's three of us and there's three of you. And so we'll build each one of you a tent, a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling place. Jesus, we'll build one for you, but we're also going to build one for Moses and we're also going to build one for Elijah. No distinction between the three. Three rabbis who get three of the same dwelling places in order to prolong this scene. Now, Peter... We said the words are just jumping out of his mouth. He really didn't know what to say. But can you see how he's responding to the glory of Jesus? By treating him as an equal. Equal to Moses. Equal to Elijah. The question is, do we ever do that? Do we ever think that way? But then maybe the better question is, do we ever live that way? Do we ever come face to face with the glory of Jesus? And then treat him as equal to everything else in our lives. Because of course Jesus is a big part of our lives. But then we have our family, our friends, our jobs, our school, our responsibilities, our hobbies. And it's not that those things are more important than Jesus, but they're all just kind of laid out on the same plane in equality with one another. Maybe we live our lives sometimes saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to build a tent for Jesus and, and I'll make sure I do that. But I'm also going to build a tent for my family and a tent for my friends and a tent for my job and a tent for my politics and a tent for my responsibilities and a tent for my hobbies. And we lay all of these things in equality with one another. My question is, do we truly understand the glory of Jesus if we're treating him as an equal? Have we truly experienced how great and how excellent the Lord actually is if He's laid out on the table as being equal to everything else in our lives? I think a much better response to the glory of Jesus is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. And it's not Jesus as an equal, but it's Jesus as the only. As soon as those words come out of Peter's mouth, what happens in verse 7? The Bible says that a cloud overshadowed them as they were on top of the mountain. This recalls different events from the Old Testament, but perhaps the foremost is in Exodus, the 19th chapter, where God tells Moses, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud on top of Mount Sinai. That's when He gave the Ten Commandments. That's when He established His covenant with the nation of Israel. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Here are Jesus' 
his disciples, Moses and Elijah, standing on top of a mountain. And a cloud overshadows them. You imagine this from the disciples' perspective. They've been locked in on the glory of Jesus, the glory of Moses and Elijah, and that radiating light starts to fade away as the cloud settles in. As the cloud overshadowed them, a powerful voice comes from the sky. What what does He say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. What's the message being communicated? This scene is not about Elijah. This scene is not about Moses. This scene is about the beloved Son of God. They were to no longer listen to the prophets represented by Elijah. They were to no longer listen to the law represented by Moses. Those were no longer their authority. They were to listen to Jesus as not just a rabbi, but God's beloved Son. Jesus was to be their authority. Jesus was to be their only need. And I think that's exactly what they learned. As the text closes in Mark chapter 9 and verse 8, as the clouds started to fade away, the text says that Moses and Elijah were gone. There was no longer anyone standing there. The disciples didn't see anybody. But look at the last three words. But Jesus only. I believe that this is something that the disciples needed to witness. They had just heard, we said a minute ago in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, six days earlier, Jesus began to teach them about how He was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. There's no doubt in the last six days the disciples were struggling with that. They had questions about that. Their Christ wasn't supposed to die. Their Messiah wasn't supposed to suffer. Their Messiah wasn't supposed to be rejected. He was supposed to lead the Jews to conquer the Romans and establish an earthly kingdom in the city of Jerusalem to give independence to the Jews once again. To establish the Jewish kingdom once again. Over the last six days, perhaps they had been wondering, is He actually the Messiah? Is He really the Christ? Is He really who we confess Him to be? In this scene that they're witnessing in Mark chapter 9, tells them, yes, He is. He is who He claims to be. He is the glorious Son of God. And your responsibility is to listen to Him. To recognize your need for Him and for Him alone. How do we respond to the glory of Jesus? Maybe sometimes we're like Jesus' three disciples in verses 5-6 through and we lay down Jesus as an equal to everything else In our lives. I want to suggest to you. When we truly see. When we truly experience. The great glory of our Lord. He's not just going to be an equal. He's going to be. The only. We're going to learn the same lesson. That the disciples learned. This is God's beloved son. And I need to spend my life. Listening to him. And everything that I do and everything that I am, He's going to be my authority. I'm going to look up and when I look at my life, I'm going to see Him only. He's not just a big part of my life. He is my life. 
and everything else goes back to Him. Everything else is determined by Him. When we see the glory of Jesus, He's not just an equal with everything else. We look up and we see Him and Him only. Responding to the glory of Jesus. If this is something that's going to be done appropriately, we need to spend some time listening to Him. Do you listen to Jesus whenever He says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved? Mark 16, 16. Do you listen to Jesus whenever He says, If you abide in My Word, then you will be My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free? John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Do you listen to Jesus in Matthew the 11th chapter when He says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This week, respond to Jesus' glory by not treating Him as an equal, but treating Him as the only. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Allow Jesus to be your authority. If you have the need to do that tonight, by putting Him on in baptism or having us pray for you as a brother or sister, we would love to do that as together we stand and sing.